and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Osher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we have a very special publishing industry show where we're going to be speaking to Christian Lorenzen, the book critic, a former editor at the LRB and New York Magazine, and also Lisa Lucas, who is the publisher of Pantheon and Shokin Books and a publishing industry veteran as well. Yeah. So we're we're kind of just checking in on the state of publishing because as listeners might or might not know, a lot of magazines have closed in the past six months or so. Book Forum probably is the biggest one. Astra, where I worked, closed. And Vice. Vice just folded or declared bankruptcy, rather. Okay. Vice just declared bankruptcy. So did BuzzFeed. MTV, BuzzFeed, MTV News. So it ranges from the really small to the really big. <laughs> and so that seemed like, you know, something we should talk about. And then publishing has also been going through a big shift, both in terms of the kinds of books that are being published and the sale of Simon and Schuster, right? The sale which, of Simon and Schuster, which wasn't Penguin wasn't able to acquire. And now God only knows who will. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot going on. Um, and we, we thought this would be a good subject of conversation for the LARB radio hour. Yeah, of course, because LARB is a, a small magazine, online magazine as well. And actually, we thrive on reader support. And I just wanted to say, if you like the radio hour, you can uh, support us directly at lareviewofbooks.org slash radio hour. Yeah, that's how we exist. We depend on reader support. So yes, apropos of this conversation, that is very relevant. Yes. And, you know, not quite apropos, but someone who was a real beacon for fair labor practices and for independent organizations of all kinds is Mike Davis, who passed very sadly last year. And I wanted to just plug an event coming up this weekend, which is a radical walk in Silver Lake that LA Review of Books is putting together with the support of the ACLU. There's going to be a zine published with the support of Mike Davis's family, there's going to be toasts and the audience is encouraged to participate. And if you're interested in attending, you can still RSVP. There's still spaces available. I think it's going to be a real full street on these radical walks. And the information is all at lareviewofbooks.org slash events slash remembering Mike Davis. And I will be going. Yeah, if I were in LA, I would definitely go. So I'm, I'm sad to miss it. We'll miss you. All right. Well, let's talk about the fate of publishing. Great. And first, we'll be speaking with Lisa Lucas and then Christian Lorenzo. Okay, let's do it. Okay. We're so glad to be speaking with Lisa Lucas, who has worked in publishing and arts nonprofits for a little over two decades. Since 2020, she has been the senior vice president and publisher of Knopf Doubleday and oversees both Pantheon and Shokin Books. Formerly, she served as the executive director of the National Books Foundation. And before that, she was the publisher of the magazine Guernica. We wanted to speak with her today about the current state of book publishing in the U.S., as well as the ecosystem of books in general, and what feels like a time of major shakeups in the industry. Thank you so much for being here, Lisa. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Lisa, so maybe we should just get started by talking about your experience and how you ended up where you are today. Sure. I mean, it's such a higgledy-piggledy story, you know, how I ended up doing what I'm doing right now. I started a long time ago. I've always been driven by obsessions, right? So every job that I've ever had has been related to something I've been obsessed with. So as a kid and, you know, young adult, I was obsessed with musicals and theater. And I ended up immediately after college going and working at Steppenwolf Theater Company and then in film and then in, you know, sort of a magazine and the literature. And so it's always been driven by just the stuff that I consume in my own cultural life, right? 
But at each step of the way, you know, my first job out of college was at Steppenwolf Theater Company. And that was an establishment, you know, sort of regional theater that had been around for almost 20 years at that time, I believe. And it was this just powerhouse for what it did nationally. It was disproportionately represented on the national stage. And, you know, but it was just like most of your high performing cultural institutions. It was beautiful and rigorous and a crown jewel in Chicago's cap, but it was not super accessible. It was not something that the whole city of Chicago could really participate in. And so I ended up linking up with the education department there. And really, for me, that was where you saw all kinds of children from around the Chicagoland area filtering into these theaters that looked like kind of like upper crusty uniform audiences that, you know, sort of went to the theater every Tuesday. And that was exciting to me. And I think that at every step of the way, I've kind of tried to find the things that I love and tried to find ways for people who didn't have the same kind of access to those things to find ways for them to engage. And that started at the education program Steppenwolf and continued on when I was the director of education at Tribeca. And I think that the fact that Guernica was a free online magazine, you know, I used to joke and call it the People's New Yorker. And then the National Book Foundation, where it was really about taking the most excellent books of any given year and making sure that people had access to them. So that's really how it ended up here. And I think that it's funny because those are all sort of mission-driven organizations, you know, that are nonprofit, that really are ostensibly about access because of who they are, although nonprofits aren't perfect either. But it was the first really major leap I ever did in my career to move from nonprofits to corporate publishing. You know, I think everybody thought it was this big jump to go from Guernica to the National Book Foundation, like, oh, that's a really different job or even really different to go from Tribeca to Guernica. But the reality is those are the same frames. Those are the same models. I had the same funders from being 21 years old at Steppenwolf NEA, all the way to my last day at the National Book Foundation. But now I'm working in a really different frame. And so I guess the question for me, rather than the how I got here, is can I take all of these years of experience working to sort of build new audiences and bring people into the arts and say, this is here for you? Does that work, you know, in an environment where you're selling something to a person rather than giving it to them or simply offering an invitation? I think that you're really understanding the sort of nuances of the marketplace. And I think that there are ways to find equity and access points inside of the marketplace as well. So that's how I ended up being here as publisher of Pantheon and Shotgun. So now that you're there and that that is your mission, kind of bringing more people into the fold, tell us how that has played out in a corporate environment as opposed to a nonprofit space. For me, you know, it's hard to answer in terms of like, Book publishing is slow, right? So I've been here for two and a half years now, which seems extreme, you know, but I've only published that you can buy. I've edited three books and that's it. That's two and a half years. It's like that, you know, we've obviously been working, but that's the speed of a book. So I don't know that I have the answers yet about sort of how it's playing out in this new environment, but I do think that I'm learning on two fronts. So obviously I'm learning how to be a publisher, right? And some of it is like nonprofits are actually businesses. Nothing except for rocket science is rocket science. And everyone is always learning. Like, so these things are all true, you know, but it's also a very different trade. Like, it's like, I didn't think about the supply chain when I was at the National Book Foundation, right? I didn't think about production and design and timelines and, you know, shipping containers coming from across the world or where it's economically feasible to print a four-color comic book. These are not things that I was thinking about. So you have that learning, but you also have the different frame institutionally. In the publishing world, you have some small independents, you have nonprofits, you have large independents, and you have corporates, right? Those are the basic frameworks of all these different publishers, and they all work really differently. And so corporate publishing, obviously, these are big companies, and you know it's like I work... I am Pantheon and Shocken, and I work inside the Knopf Doubleday Publishing Group, which is a part of Penguin Random House US, which is a part of Penguin Random House Global, which is a part of Bertelsmann. And so there's an awful lot of people and an awful lot of benefits to being something that big, but you have to learn how to navigate it. You know, I also think that like a lot about publishing is a lobbying environment, like where it's like you want to get people to be passionate rather than at a nonprofit where you're building consensus. 
And it's like, you're just like, how do we all get on the same page versus like, kind of like, how do I rise this thing to the top of everyone's pile? And so I think it's just mostly like, I couldn't really say how it's playing out. I think I'll need time to really actually be able to say what I think. But I do think that there's an awful lot of education around how to translate some of those skills that I developed all those years at nonprofits and how to sort of figure out how to apply them to the task at hand. And I think that that's the work. That might be like a slightly unsatisfying answer, but I think that really, you know, it's like when you do this kind of pivot, you're really trying to figure out, you know, how you take what you have and to maybe broaden or brighten the work that you do in another framework. I'm curious, just to follow up a little bit on that, going from the National Book Foundation to your current role, do you see like the publishing industry as functioning in a different way than you did before? Do you see it as like, what's your current read on how things are going, where it's at as a whole, as opposed to from your previous vantage? I definitely feel like I understand more you know, both the sort of challenges that publishers face and the challenges that we create for ourselves trying to get the work done, right? Like it's definitely, I think doing the work teaches you a lot. You know, it also reminds you how hard it is to get people to read in America with all of these books being published, how hard it is to focus the eye, you know, and what skill it takes to actually, when these books, when you see a book that just flies, like I now look at that book and I think, damn, I know how many people had to work so hard and so brilliantly to make that possible because it's just absolutely not guaranteed any point for anyone. And I think that it's astonishing to see this many people work in lockstep. It's entirely different than I imagined. It's also very similar to how I imagined it. Nonprofits, the nonprofits I were at were really small and intimate. You know what I mean? And they were built out of pure support. And you're focusing on the present so much of the time. You know, this show is coming up. But you're sort of thinking on three different timelines in publishing. You know, you're thinking about your backlist. You're thinking about front list and you're thinking about what's coming in your acquisitions, right? So it's like you have to be in three different eras at the same time. And that doesn't really happen. And I think that that, so this is a long way around to sort of say that I think that a lot of the sort of problems that people have with publishing really have to do with the sort of sheer difficulty of the labor, some of them. So that has been sort of noticed in my time here. In terms of change, I think that publishing is changing as much as each human being that lived through that pandemic is and lived through that this time that we've lived through is, you know, the whole world quaked a few years ago and it was probably planning to quake a few years before that. And we weren't looking and probably even a few more years before that, what we might call now the beginning, but you know, everything stopped, everything stopped for a whole year. Basically everything stopped. And I think you have colleagues who are working all over the world. They're remote. They've moved cities. You have people have a totally different relationship to technology than they had on, you know, March 1st, 2020, like a completely different relationship to audiobooks or streaming or podcasts or any of it and books. So I think that we're quaking as much as everyone's quaking. I don't know that Hollywood is quaking less. I don't know that dance, which is a you know live performance and wasn't able to do live performances and had to move into a digital space. I don't know that they're quaking less. And I think that we're all dealing with economic issues and cultural issues that we haven't seen. And so I think publishing is absolutely not. You know, Reagan, Arthur, when I first got this job said, you know, everything in publishing is up for change. It can and will over the next 10 years. And I agree with that completely. There's no way for this business to be the same way that it wasn't eight years from now, 10 years from now, none, because it's like everything is changing. The demographics of the country are changing. The way that we consume media is changing. The way that we, the way that we relate to one another is changing. AI has entered the building. What in the world do we do with that? And so it's just like, there's so much technological innovation happening and so much like human development. Like, I think we just really had to become a different, I think that the effects of the pandemic were just astonishing. 
I don't think anybody is really going to understand what it did to us for a long time. But yet also book sales were up during the pandemic. Yeah. Now people are back. We can go to restaurants and we can watch TV. And I think the job has always been, and you can either agree or disagree, but I think the job has always been to build the audience at large, right? Like it's like, yes, we can sell a book. Yes, we can you know, get this award. But the job has always been to use those wins to build the audience, to remind, you know, we get excited when 30,000 copies of a book sell or 50,000 copies of a book sell or 100, 200,000 copies of a book sell. God, a million. There are 325 million Americans. And so even 1 million books is reaching such a small fraction of who we are that we have to have bigger appetites. That to me feels really important. You know, I hope you know, that in this sort of moment of retraction, right, people were reading a ton because they were stuck in the house. The backlist was king. You know, all these books that were telling us about the time, about the plague, about not being racist, you know, about prisons, whatever it is that we were talking about in the news, we were really abolition books, you know, as we, we talked about whether or not we wanted police, whether or not we wanted jails for that brief, wonderful moment in time where we cared collectively. That's gone now on an individual level. I don't know from a corporate level, but it's uh, on the individual level. I think we all have forgotten that time. But now we're back to business as usual, quote unquote. And, you know, let's see what happens. But I do think that we had a brief moment of having everyone gaze at us. And that was, you know, sort of a beginning of a renewed audience. And by renewed, I mean just people who maybe hadn't picked up a book or picking them up. I do think that the book is a durable good. And books haven't gone away. I don't anticipate that they'll go away. Like, they're not dying. They're not dead. People love them. Like, it's okay. But I do think that we need to maybe treat them as less precious and make sure that we think everyone should read a book and stop scaring people away from reading books. Like, if you can read, it's for you. Like, you are smart enough to read something rigorous and hard. Well, I have two questions, but I think we touched upon, or you touched upon some of the cultural issues that you think have sort of risen to the top as of late. And I'm wondering if you you said that you're kind of driven by obsessions. Like, is there one that you feel kind of obsessed with? You can be obsessed with several, but are there some cultural issues, some cultural, something that you feel very interested in? I think banned books are definitely a really sad and unexpected and just heartbreaking phenomena. You know, one of the books that we published, a couple of the books that we published, we did The Diary of Anne Frank, the graphic um, adaptation, and we also did Mouse. We also published Persepolis, which has been banned repeatedly over the years. And I think a few others that have just been banned, 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 banned. But I mean, I think that it reminds you how important the book is when it, so many people are spending so much time trying to suppress them and to suppress access to them. And so I think for me, it makes me want to double down. I don't know. I mean, other than like, you know, book banning bad, like I don't have like more complicated feelings about it. Like, yeah, book banning, terrible. Stop banning books. Don't burn them. Don't ban them. Like CRT is fiction or like the fact that people are being like, you know, force fed CRT in public schools because they read a book about like somebody growing up black and feeling like slavery was sad. Like, come on. Or 1619, like, you know, it's like not alternative history. It's actually history. These things are obvious to me, but what they make me feel like is like these folks who are banning books know how powerful the book is. And I wish I could tell every person how much power they could have if they picked up a book. I guess I'm maybe a little obsessive about the pandemic and the fact that like we are all humans with hearts, you know, and we get lonely and we get sad and we get troubled and we get scared and we're living in a society that's changing and that's complicated and that's the country's in conflict with itself. There's like rampant inequality, like all of these things are hard. That is hard on a human. And, you know, I don't know where I read it or I couldn't accurately cite the statistics, but there's something where it's like, if you read a book for 12 minutes, you become more calm. Like when you enter the world, once you've had enough time to sort of enter the world. But I also just, I guess, in my sort of never ending quest for like inner peace, you know, I wish more people could seek solace inside of the book. Cause it's like, it's very clear that we're hurting. And that's maybe not my most intellectual thought I've ever had, but it's like, just as much as I'd like people to go to a yoga class or eat their greens, reading a book feels physically good for you. Physically good for your soul. Well, physically good for your soul is probably not a thing, but like, you know, it feels like a helpful thing. 
and like something that calms us and gives us relief. And I think that we're very much in need of that. And I think we're also feeling really siloed and apart from each other. And we're not really trying to hear, we're not trying to understand one another. And I think that, and back to that old good old trope about books and empathy, but I do think that we are in a moment where we're critically, urgently in need of care and empathy. And, you know, the further we get away from the fact and the humanity of everyone that we share this world with, the harder one it is. So I think, you know, yes, publishing is corporate and it makes money and there's bestsellers and there's Colleen Hoover and there's all sorts of things and there's problems in the industry and it's hard to sell books and the supply chain sucks and, you know, everything is a mess and it's hard to get anything to work these days, but it is just the most beautiful thing. And, and I have to say that coming into publishing, as difficult as it's been to go from being a nonprofit person to a corporate publishing person at 41 years old, right? Which is just like a hard thing to do, like no matter what you're doing. I feel a little old for it. That kind of change. I don't know how many more of them I'll do in my life, but it feels like a really, I've been impressed that so many people in one building, two buildings, five, 10, 20 buildings, 100 buildings around the country are doing this work of making the book, which feels like a really old practice and a really valuable one and a sort of life-saving, life-changing world. Although I wouldn't say that there's anything, there's no such thing as an art emergency at the same breath. Lest you think I'm taking myself too seriously. How do you um, spread the gospel of books when it feels like the avenues to do that, like the larger ecosystem, you know, including book reviews, magazines, all these things, even social media, which is supposedly crumbling as well. And seems like that was one way to reach people. If those aren't going to be the ways, what are the ways? Well, you know, I mean, brick and mortar bookstores are still here and they are still doing God's work. So I think, first of all, you know, it's like, despite the sort of ups and downs that the bookselling community has had, particularly the independent bookselling community, they are out there for the love selling books day in, day out. And I feel like that is um, the way that I experienced buying books as a child. And it's the way that young people are growing up today. They're in the bookstore getting excited about what's on the shelves. I think that libraries continue to be community centers and places that sort of keep the tradition alive. And, and the innovation of the librarians that I've come across over the years has just been so profound. I think also like, you know, sure, you've got this problem and you've got that problem and you've got pulling back here and there's no more book coverage at that place. But ultimately people really like books. I remember 2012 when I was at Guernica, early days, you know, I remember there was like a resurgence of little magazine and everybody had been saying, oh, well, there's no more little magazines. And the only ones that could survive were the Paris Review and the New Yorker and all the sort of little indie guys are, you know, having trouble. And then it was just this profound moment for Granta and for Guernica. And then, you know, electric literature steps into the fold and you know, all this stuff was bubbling. You know, and it was the beginning of a new conversation, a new era of conversations, I should say, about equity in publishing and about what kinds of work needed to be out there and, you know, even how we think about the Black vernacular in literature. It was just this really changing moment. So it's like, I think that these things go in cycles. I think we're so quick to be like, books are back. And then like, books are dying. Books are back. No, now they're dying again. The reality is that books are ever present and they're with us. And there's just like anything else. Sometimes the interest rates are high. Sometimes they're low. You know, sometimes prices are inflationary and sometimes they're not. But that doesn't mean money is over. We don't say it's the end of money when there's shock waves, you know, in the stock market, right? But every time there's shock waves in publishing, we say, that's the end of the book. No, it's not. We'll be here. I promise you we'll be here in a hundred years. If we humans are here, we books will be here too. I think this is a slightly different question, but uh, we're talking about, you know, increasing access, reaching more than that one million people, aside from these places where we can sort of build real communities around books, around reading, what do you think are some of the the ways in which we can do that? Is it like, is it prices, lowering prices, making books cheaper? Is it publishing different kinds of books? Is it, what do you think are the factors that might go into sort of increasing the access? It's interesting. The conversation about reducing prices around books is so interesting. 
Because at a glance, like, yeah, man, if it's cheaper, there's more access. The average person, independent of their economics, is spending how much on a movie for two hours, hour and a half, 90 minutes, Fast and the Furious. Do we feel that Fast and the Furious is accessible to people? Yeah, generally, I would think it's accessible. It's accessible, right. Everybody, you know, there's no like sort of rich people only have seen Fast and the Furious. Like, no, it's 20 bucks. A softcover book is 14, 16, 18. What about that is inaccessible? And if you reduce the price, you pay the author less. So how does that really help? What we need to do is increase the value, the way that we value the book. We somehow are willing to pay $7 for a latte, $30 for a yoga class, 20 bucks for a movie, blah, blah, blah for some sneakers. But we want the price for books to go down. Why is that? It's because we don't value them. We think that they're so, they should be cheaper. I have to wonder, you know, when Matt said against what we don't complain about, it's always a very curious request because I don't think that movies feel inaccessible for people and they're more expensive than a book. And movies are not understood to be borrowed from libraries as much as books are. So any person in any city can go to the library and get a book for free. So I just, I wonder why that keeps coming up as a suggestion because it will hurt the writers. It'll hurt the publishers It'll make it, despite taking years and years and years of labor and years of training and being a sort of highly hard to attain craft, it'll say it's it's not worth more than 10 bucks, but everything else is. The theater, you can pay a hundred bucks or 75 bucks or whatever. And, you know, a dance performance and a concert you'll pay for, but we won't pay for books. So I would argue that I think that we have a critical issue about how we value books in our lives and in our financials in a way that is really sad to me and always has been. I've said this for years when I was at the National Book Wars, it was part of my speech. It just the idea that books should cost less is just so sad to me because I just don't see people screaming about everything else. You know, also just as much as we have a rigorous corporate bookmaking environment, the number of independent presses, how would they survive? And do we not value their work? So it's an interesting one. I mean, it's obviously economic and obviously the presence of libraries softens that comment because the thing is that books have been made really accessible because of libraries and librarians. So it's like, I'm always just really curious about how that would do the trick. They're free if you have the wherewithal to go to the library. You know, so I don't know, but I think that we need to deepen the way that we value the book. The only way it changes is sort of, it's like the way that we value the Oscar. We value so much, so much. We scream if it goes. You know, but then we we really don't, we say we like books and then we don't buy them. We don't stand up. We don't support. You know, it's like, I think that we have to put our money where our mouth is when we can. And spreading the gospel, you know, it's like, I think for me, it's just about staying near the reader. Stay near the reader. You'll figure out where they're hanging out. They're somewhere. They're on TikTok right now. Is TikTok still a thing for book sales? I think it is. You know, I mean, it's like, I haven't had a book pop on TikTok. But the point is that there are, when Twitter started, book Twitter wasn't a thing in 2010. And then it was a firm thing by 2012. It's always moving, but the readers are everywhere. You just have to find them and stay close. What are the numbers of copies that would have to sell for a book to be considered successful? There's no such thing. From a business perspective, there's how much you paid for it. And that's going to determine how successful it is based on the number of copies that it sells. Even for the bestseller list, like the number of copies you need to get on that list really depend on what time of year it is and how many books sold that week. So there is actually not an answer. You're also thinking in different categories. Is it the same answer for nonfiction or fiction, children's literature? It's totally different. So I don't know that that's answerable for me. One more thing I want to talk about is I know you've been such an advocate for diversity in publishing. We've been talking about it a bit today. I have two questions about that. One, like beyond all the obvious reasons why it's important to have a wider range of voices to represent, you know, this country more as it actually looks in the publishing industry. Are there other reasons that people sometimes miss? And I I guess it's kind of going back to what you're saying, like, how do you reach more people? You have more voices represented that you publish, I would assume is, you know, it's a smart business. Mm -hmm. And then also how you've seen diversity play out in publishing, what you think is happening. Is it getting better? Have you been happy with how things are going? So I would say that the, obviously, equity 
is important. Diversity is important. Exclusion is horrific. Repression is suppression. All these things are terrible, right? And so it's like you want to have an environment where people feel welcome, just like you want the reader to feel welcome. I think you mirror what you want from the world in your work environment. But I think that also a really big reason for this is economic, completely. You know, I'll start by saying that I think I, I'm not from, you know, the for-profit world. And so I tend to think of dollars as transmissions of ideas. Like, it's easier for me to be like, I, yes, I would like to sell 10 million copies of any book at any time. Now, for somebody that might be like, that's money. You know, and for me, that's 10 million minds that read this thing that I think is valuable. And we all like are having a conversation and that like changes things, right? But either way, you get to the same answer, which is that you've made money or you changed minds or just in some way, like infuse the culture. So that's really good. So you want to increase, you know, if we have an underexploited community that is not participating to scale in books, then you want that. That's market share. That's like a straight up, you know, sort of like best business thing to chase. But I think you also are, publishing is not necessarily, has not necessarily thought about the fact that over the years, right, like the marketplace in 1980 demographically has almost no relationship to what the marketplace will look like in 2040. You know, you have minority majority on its way already here for the under 12s. I think minority majority is such a dumb term, but like what else are you going to call it? And so if you were like selling books in 1995, you're selling to literally different human beings. And if you use the same techniques from 1995 or the same content or the same people selling those books, 1995, everybody's the same. What are you doing? You know, I mean, it's just like, it's a whole new world and you have to sort of adapt and evolve for that. You know, I'm and the happiness, unhappiness, look, it's a big ship. So it's going to take a long time to turn. This is a big ship. Am I happy? No, I'm like, like a speed demon. It's like, I'm never happy when things don't change overnight. But I think part of my displeasure in general is like part of my love. If that makes sense. Like, it's like, I love this enough to be mad at it, you know, and to want us to be better as a larger community. And that's important. My anger is my love for this work and for letters and for writers and publishers and editors. And But, you know, the one thing that I think is that we had an external conversation, a conversation that was taking place, not inside of the walls of the publisher, you know, not in between publishing professionals, but a conversation with the reader, with everyone, just your dirty laundry out in the streets, right? Because things had gotten kind of wild. And I do think that with all that pressure, there's not a lot of understanding of what publishing is and what publishing does, right? So all the pressure comes onto the publishers, diversify, diversify, but diversify what? So I come in, I'm a publisher, editor, all these editors come in. What about sales? What about marketing? Do you know what I mean? What about the retailers? Where's the pressure? Was there pressure? And have they changed? You know, I couldn't answer it for you, but I think that's the place to look. If we're looking to really evolve, it's got to be holistic change. It's not on one imprint. It's not on one person. It's on the system, figuring out how to coherently and collaboratively serve a bigger audience and to have the will to do so and to have the right teams, the right staff, the right knowledge, the right checks, the right balances, which come from, you know, sort of peer driven moments. And so I think that's really important. I will say this, publishing has changed from where I sat in 2010, where I sit today it would be ungenerous to sit here and say that publishing hasn't shifted. Now, has it finished shifting? Has it done enough? You know, we'll see. But has it actually changed? Yes, that is factual. And I hope that we keep it up. You know, I think it's meaningful. I think the books that we see right now are really different from what we were seeing when I was a teenager in the 90s, right? And that matters for young people. And it's like, you're also, you're doing all these different things when publishing changes, right? Of course, you're economically, money is flowing in different ways and other people have an opportunity to take a bite out of the apple and all these things happened. But I think you're also training the next generation of writer. What makes you want to be a filmmaker or a movie star when you're a kid? Is watching movies, do you know what I mean? And seeing something about yourself refracted back. It doesn't have to be literal. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't have to be like, I saw a black woman doing whatever. I saw somebody who shared a sensibility. I saw somebody who was from the same place, you know, or somebody who spoke fast like I do, whatever it is. You know, you see something shared and you latch 
you know, and the more that we engage readers, the more voices we'll have and the more publishing professionals we have. What makes you want to go work in movies? Well, you watch them obsessively. We want diverse workforces, but if we don't have black and brown and other readership and we're not serving those communities to scale, then how do we bring those communities in as professionals? You know, so I think you're doing professional development. I think you're generating the next generation of talent. You know what I mean? You're battening down the hatches in terms of being a viable industry. You know, I just think that there's very little downside to diversity that I can see other than the culture wars are really gnarly and unpleasant for everyone involved. I guess that's um, where we're going to have to leave it. But Lisa, thank you so much for speaking with us today. All right. This was really, really fun. Thanks so much for having me. That was Lisa Lucas. She is currently publisher of Pantheon and Shotgun Books. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with publisher Lisa Lucas. We now turned our conversation with the critic Christian Lorenzen. We're happy to be speaking with the critic and writer Christian Lorenzen today. He's the former book critic of New York Magazine, a former editor at the London Review of Books and Harper's, and a frequent contributor to publications such as Harper's, the LRB, New York Times Book Review, Airmail, and many more. He's also written extensively on the publishing industry, including a piece on the antitrust case taken up by the Department of Justice to block Penguin Random House's purchase of Simon & Schuster that was the cover story for the March issue of Harper's. More recently, he lamented the loss of the magazine Book Forum in a piece for the Washington Post opinion page. Lorenzen was a frequent contributor to Book Forum before the publication shuttered late last year, and we wanted to have a conversation with him about the current state of magazine publishing in the U.S., especially small magazines and those that cover books like us here at LARB. Thank you so much, Christian, for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Maybe we could start with a piece that you wrote for the Washington Post last week about the state of the literary magazine. Can you give listeners who might not really be familiar with what is going on just kind of a, an idea of the broader the broader state of how things are are going? Book Forum is the longest lived literary publication in the U.S. It was started as a supplement to Art Forum. It's, you know, sibling publication in the mid-90s. But for people of a certain generation, which is to say, like, I arrived in New York City and the literary world around the year 2000. And by then, Book Forum was really kind of cooking and it has established itself as a distinctive rival to the more established landscape that would include the New York Review of Books, Harper's, The Nation, The New Yorker, Times Book Review, and so on. So for people my age and younger, we had thought of it as a fixture and, you know, an institution that wasn't going to go away anytime soon. However... I think the principal owner or shareholder of Art Forum had gotten into his 80s and so was interested in selling the magazines in order that they'd be preserved. The sale of Art Forum went to Penske Media and they weren't interested in purchasing Book Forum and Book Forum was no longer viable as a standalone publication because of certain, I don't know the details about the way circulation and ad sales and production were set up between the two, you know, and magazines close all the time, particularly in the commercial magazine world where once a magazine either stops being profitable or fails to ever become profitable, a corporation like Condé Nast or Hearst will just shut it down. That was not, you know, Bookform had employees who are salaried employees and stuff, but it was not, it was in some ways a labor of love, certainly for a lot of its contributors who were not getting real market rates for their writing, but it was a place where you felt like as a young writer, 
they'd give you a shot and a chance to shine and your work would appear alongside really great, venerable writers like Gary Indiana or Vivian Bornick. And it had, it was criticism of a very high level and also a magazine within which different generations and sensibilities encountered each other. And because it had its roots more in the art world than in national politics or foreign policy worlds, where publications tend to enter into one narrow niche or another on the left or the right, very little in book form that could be said to be on the right, but its interventions and political matters tended to be more eccentric and playful than you get in the other more venerable and staid publications. Let me ask you one question, which is that, you know, I think the reason for me, at least, that it was so shocking when Book Forum closed is because I never got the sense that they were struggling financially. And maybe that was because of the synchronicity with Art Forum and having a sense that Art Forum made so much money from ads or that, you know, maybe Book Forum was kind of writing the Art Forum tales. There's some kind of structure that has to do with shared production. Book Forum had a guaranteed circulation because every subscriber to Art Forum automatically got Book Forum. And then there were independent subscribers. I've had on and off throughout my life, I've had subscriptions to both publications. But um, certainly editorially, one felt that Book Forum was in one of its primes. And among particularly young readers on social media, a lot of young people would greet it as Book Forum Day on Twitter or whatever. And there was some genuine excitement around each issue being a kind of event. Right. And so when Pesky decided not to continue with the magazine, I guess, without really a reason why, it made me feel at least like they somehow felt like it wasn't important or it was just... Well, I don't know if this has been publicly reported and I'm not going to state it as a fact, but the impression I was left with was that Pesky's publications, they have a lot of publications from the art world and a lot of publications from... Hollywood and the television and movie industry and nothing in the literary world. And they were just never interested in book forum. They were really only pursuing the purchase of art forum. So it's sort of like they never fit into their business model. It wasn't like they bought it in order to shut it down or something like that. You know, I'm also under the impression that it still remains possible or even likely that a savior will arrive for book form. But it's not a done deal yet. Maybe you could talk about that aspect too. Like the, sometimes I have a sense that a lot of vulnerable publications really just have like a couple benefactors behind them. And that maybe they're not as always like, in the black as the fact that they just have people who believe in them. Yeah. And there, no, there are a lot of publications that take a loss and have always and are supported either by a range of donors or one or two benefactors. And really they tend to be not so much dependent on the whims of those benefactors who usually tend to make a serious commitment to undertake responsibility for the publications that they are funding and in some cases own. But um, at the time of the 2008 crash, for instance, I was working at a right-wing newspaper as a copy editor (laughs) Ideologically, it was not a very good fit for me, but that didn't matter because I was just fixing the commas. And, you know, the economy tanked in 2008. And, you know, that was that because, I don't know, the tax write-off was no longer enough with the market, you know, with the profits not coming in from these investors. But as I've often said to publishers or people in the business, I'm not a money side person. (laughs) I'm an editorial person. So I'm not the greatest expert on how or why these 
things fail or succeed financially. But, you know, I've been around for 23 years and have seen things start up and keep going. Like N plus one, I was sort of a consultant when they were doing their first issues. And now they're bugging me this morning. And when's your DeLillo piece going to be done? But they've been going for a long, almost 20 years now. It's a lot of selling tote bags and having a big dinner that getting a bunch of rich people to buy tables and running on a shoestring budget with maybe two employees. I mean, you guys must know how that goes out in L.A. You've been going for more than 10 years now, which is great to see. Even in the case of Artform Book Forum, even the natural lifespan of those benefactors can be a limiting factor on the viability of a publication. And, you know, the sad thing is that editorially, I mean, sometimes a magazine really outlasts its mission. Like when the Weekly Standard closed, it was partly a result of the Republican Party and right-wing politics transforming in such a way that they no longer needed a neocon magazine to push their neocon agenda. So it made sense that that magazine closed when it did because it had outlasted its ideological purpose. And such was not the case with Book Forum. Yeah, I think coming from, I think of like weeklies, you know, like The Voice or the LA Weekly where I worked right out of college in Los Angeles, at least because there's so little media here. Something like the LA Weekly, I still feel it's lost, you know, in terms of local reporting, interesting stories, in terms of like comprehensive listings, these ways in which the magazine really did or the weekly really served this purpose. It was useful. And without it, I feel like the city is a lot worse for it. I feel like the culture in Los Angeles in particular is worse for it. So, and I think Book Forum will be the same thing because it was such a niche publication in in what it covered in a lot of those books, I think would otherwise fall through the cracks. And as a reviewer, it's like, where do you write about certain books? Yeah, it's true. The Voice, you know, it's music section. And I mean, The Voice was truly a victim of, I mean, I guess it's still a lot. It's been revived in some ghostly form. But I remember just going to the newsstand on Tuesday afternoons to get, you know, a big fat village voice. But really the internet destroyed its business model on ad sales and classified ad sales and Craigslist really hit it hard. So events like this drive home the fragility of things that you grow up with and think are going to be around forever, of course. But turns out that in a capitalist system... (laughs) Everything that that is created can be destroyed or simply cease. Well, I want to go back a little bit to your long experience here. I graduated into 2008. Uh, The feeling at that time was very much like, well, it was good while it lasted. We're done. Everybody's done. Everybody (laughs) can go home. Like, it's over. There's like a part of this year that's feeling somewhat like that to me. Like, it's feeling kind of similar there's no clear economic collapse, I would say, but maybe it's just me. There has been a lot of talk about that around internet publications. Ben Smith, the former editor of BuzzFeed News, has a new book about Gawker and BuzzFeed, both of which BuzzFeed News and Gawker both shut down within the past year. Gawker had already died once. And within the zone of web publishing, or web content, people in the industry seem to think that the era of social media is ending. That's no longer the way people are going to spread content to each other. They are going to get people to read by getting them. It's going to be a very much more subscription-based model of reading rather than sharing. And they have to get people to visit their websites again, like the... Substack writer Max Reed had has said that media companies want to build a website that you visit every day like it's 1997 or via their newsletters. So certainly for people who work in those kind of like web-only 
places or pretty much everywhere because everybody has a component of that. I think they are worried that, yeah, a certain age has ended and that's probably going to lead to the end of not only institutions, but certain types of editorial content within those institutions that just won't make sense because they were basically developed to be viral on Twitter. And there's no longer a path to virality. Again, like if you're writing a book review to be viral, you're writing it the wrong way to my mind. So I'm not that worried myself. But hey, I have a Substack and I like to get paid through it, what little I get. And uh, I have to think about things now as my own little small business person, which I never thought I would say. Since you've been freelancing for so long, do you notice a change like in how your work has, has been going or like how much money you're able to make year to year? Has there been a, a noticeable decrease or is it similar for you? I have been lucky in that I never really took the plunge into full-time freelancing until I not only had a reputation around the industry, but also I had worked at publications that were still interested in paying me for my writing, specifically Harper's and the LRB. So as long as I've been able to maintain those relationships, I have never quite made as much money as I did when I had two full-time jobs at the same time as I did for a while. But I haven't had to... The real limit on my income has been like, how many pieces can I get done? Or the longer I spend on a piece, the better it is. But the less I make per hour, if you think about it that way, because the fee is fixed. And sometimes, I mean... Recently, I had a very nice fee on a piece that was assigned to me at um, five to 7,000 words and was printed at 11,000 words, but the fee did not change. <laughs> but, you know, I'm mostly in it for the glory. And as long as I can afford my grilled cheese sandwich and A&W every day, I'm getting along. It seems to me like the places that should have nice, big, fat rates such as corporate entities like the New York Times, the Washington Post, or Condé Nast are generally upping their rates, or at least those rates to me are sound. You are never going to get that kind of rate from Book Forum. But I started writing for Book Forum after I had my first two big literary pieces in the LRB And then they immediately asked me to write a big cover story about money in American fiction. And so I was always loyal to them after that because I liked working with my editor and I liked the fact that I was pretty much unknown at the time and they offered me a chance to take a big swing. And so it was that kind of loyalty that brought a faithful set of contributors to book form. And I mean, lots of magazines have that in one way or another. Or there are magazines who just burn through writers all the time. (laughs) We don't have to talk about that because it's bad vibes. (laughs) I wonder if you think like the, like I was saying about Penske Media not picking up book form, I guess they're just not so interested in books, but the message that it sends to me is kind of like, this is a minor subject matter in a way, you know, even though the publishing industry is still going and, and all these celebs are getting into books, like you said, in your Washington Post piece, the sure. stuff about Jenna Bush yeah. Hager that I thought was really funny and, and very awful too, of course. But it's not that publishing is is dead, but sometimes it, it seems that criticism can be very niche, actually. like uh, Yeah, I mean, there are lots of forces within the publishing world that have given up on criticism as a form of publicity that's desirable. They'd rather have influencers posting their books on Instagram, I think. The kind of intellectual 
and literary sectors of the publishing industry are always smaller and more embattled than we imagine them to be because we think of that is what literature is. And therefore, that is what publishing is. And that's where the prestige in publishing is. But like, you know, Simon and Schuster started off as publishers of crossword puzzle books. And all of the major publishers still make a lot of money from like logic puzzle books, test prep books, cookbooks, anything with an ISBN, as the former CEO of Random House said on the stand at the antitrust trial in Washington. So our little literary zone, especially as a zone that's like, I think Dave Eggers of McSweeney's once referred to, he was disparaging negative reviews at one point. He was like, you shouldn't put something so toxic into a fragile ecosystem or something like that. But I think an actual healthy literary world is one where there are a lot of contentious, critical discussions and even where literary writers and their critics are kind of involved in a feedback loop where, you know, a critic like James Wood starts championing W.G. Zabald. And then suddenly, five years later, you have all these American writers who are Zabaldians. But in the, in the grand scheme of things with the publishing industry, which for two years during COVID was experiencing 20% growth overall annually, I'm told it's not quite so much this year, but still, they're all still doing pretty good. That is not top priority, I would say. Colleen Hoover and Prince Harry are where they've really made their money this year. Sometimes I question if it's, a, if it's only a money issue. You know, if all the money was there in the world, people still might not want to read book reviews. My experience of life, certainly growing up, is that most people don't read books. (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) like I've never pretended, you know, I, my family were like truck drivers and lobstermen. And like, my dad was a big reader of various forms, but his brothers weren't. My cousins certainly weren't. They were all like, growing up thinking, how do I become a cop? You know, and then there's me and my sister who went into the publishing industry and two of our other cousins became indie rock musicians, but that's out of like 30 cousins, you know? So it means the world to people like the three of us, but to the wider American and human population, it is always going to be a very niche concern. I kind of want to hear more about your relationship to reading also because I've seen, I've seen you post somewhere that, that reading is really about pleasure. And because we've been talking so much about like professionalizing it and putting it into like a careerist context, maybe we should also talk about it as like, you know, the flip side. Yeah, sure. I mean, I would say that reading first of all, to me is like air really or like oxygen. It's like the thing that I'm always doing one way or another when I'm alone, which I have a almost too distracting social life sometimes, but I'm also a freelance writer who spends all day long by myself, usually reading. And probably the reason why I became a critic, first an editor and then a critic, is that I could just like professionalize and monetize the activity I most wanted to do and came most naturally to me. I don't do much reporting because I'm lazy and I like to sit around with books all day rather than go around talking to strangers. And then I probably write criticism rather than fiction because you know that you're going to get paid for a book review. (laughs) Whereas the love them to death with the novelists and and literary memoirists and involves a lot of hustling and teaching, which I also have never been interested in doing. But I, you know, I also became a critic because there were many critics like James Wood and James Walcott, Gary Indiana, Jenny Diskey, my old boss, Mary Kay Wilmers herself, Mary McCarthy, Elizabeth Hardwick, Leslie Fiedler, Alfred Kazin, Edmund Wilson. When I was in my, and during the phase of my 20s, when I 
got out of college and was figuring out what direction I was going in, it became less about figuring it out and more just naturally that I was drawn towards those great writers I just named and wanted to do the sorts of things they did and some of them still do. So oftentimes when I'm, when I make statements about reading being a hedonistic activity, probably there's another argument happening outside there about being a virtuous literary citizen or reading, making you a better person. And, you know, certainly reading is educational and we all have to read to become more sophisticated adults. But uh, in terms of moral virtue, there are plenty of people who don't read a damn bit who are saints for all I know. I think reading is a morally neutral activity. and. Ultimately, the reason people read a lot is because they do it for pleasure, however they define that. It may be a very simple definition of pleasure that could be expressed as the engagement of your attention. You're reading a text that is causing you to think or follow a story, and it keeps you going. And so, like, at one point, I was talking to an agent and an editor about a book I was thinking about doing about criticism itself and sort of about the literary world and its degradation itself. This was around, like, uh, 2019, I think. And my agent, who used to be my roommate when we were around, I was probably around... 30 and he was probably 26 or so said i don't you need some kind of uplifting message for this book you need it to be like how to become a literary person like and this is a literary agent saying this to me like when we live together you would just wake up and start reading a novel and i said uh edward you can't teach somebody to be like that it's weird and you're either like that or you're not but I think a lot of people are like that. They don't really need me to write a book to tell them to be like that. I didn't want to write a self-help book. I wanted to write a book about certain things declining because of various cultural forces and also decisions that specific editors whom I knew were making. As people are beginning to see now, the 2010s were like a really weird decade. But, you know, in the pursuit of, like, viral attention, a lot of things within the media sphere became a lot more superficial. But by the same token, before the internet, I don't think people were able to sneakily read web content all day long while they were at their desk job. And before phones, you know... To read on the subway, you had to have a book with you or a newspaper and or a magazine. And not everybody had that, but now everybody has a phone and they're looking at something. I don't know what. It could be a video game, for all I know. But for me, it's usually like the LARB or the LRB or the NYRB or New Left Review or something. Or Liberties, another great magazine that I should have mentioned in my Washington Post piece. Mention of Liberties and Descent, two of my favorite magazines went out. So cheers to them if they're listening. There's so many people who, when they're like, to me, talking about their dream job or not job, but if they didn't have a job or their dream vacation, a time in their lives in the future, that it consists of being able to read like all day long. I think for a lot of people that still is an ideal of what they would like their life to be like. So it's not that the desire goes away per se, but I, I guess I'm wondering if you feel like what the path, if you see like a path forward, if you think that essentially like some, it's the business model that needs to change. It's the culture that needs to change. It's just the way things are, you know, in our, in the U S and they, nothing will ever change. What do you think? I mean, every now and again, you'll get kind of a moral panic, like, Nobody reads novels anymore because there's so many amazing television shows. 
And you even have people like Philip Roth saying that at the end of his life. And it's definitely true that, like, you know, there's no national poet like there was with Robert Frost or Robert Lowell. And, like, no novel reaches the public like a, a big event the way it would with Saul Bellow or John Updike or Norman Mailer or Philip Roth or Mary McCarthy. A lot of people's laments in that sense are almost laments about a transformation in the nature of publicity. And so I don't tend to take those seriously. And I still think that they're, you know, every generation is going to create its own literature. And there are, I both know personally and know of and have no doubt that the younger generations are doing that really with a lot of energy, certainly in New York City, but I think all over the place. And writers are finding each other and having forming really powerful aesthetic literary bonds from far away now because of technological transformations. Maybe won't get to read their volumes of letters like in the old days, but I think like the corporate media or legacy media environment is subject to a lot of decay. This was a line I had in the Washington Post piece, and even the corporate media landscape is subject to a lot of decay, not only in the realm of book publishing, but also even cinema and even television now, I heard, has gone from being a writer's bonanza to almost a ghost town out there. But there's always going to be an underground where, and this is one of the big pieces I intend to write over the summer, just about Indian underground literary movements and strands, aesthetic strands within that zone. I think in that sense, like things are really strong right now. And so I'm not, it makes me sad when I'm not going to get book forum every couple months in the mail anymore. And my buddies who work there are out of a job and I don't get to write in that font anymore. But it's not the end of the world. The young people are remaking the world all the time. Beautiful. I think that's a, a very hopeful note to end on. I didn't think we were going to end on a hopeful note, but I'm, I'm glad we did because hope springs eternal. Thank you so much for being here with us today. We've been speaking with Christian Lorenzen. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.